Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to the program. My guest today is Eddie Hartwig, the U.S. Digital Services Deputy Administrator. Eddie, welcome back to the program. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I know we did this roughly about six or eight months ago, maybe pushing a year ago, so it's great to catch up. There's plenty to talk about, and uh, that's where we're going to start. 2018 relatively just ended. We're we're into March, maybe pushing April. Mm -hmm. Here we are, 2019. Give me a sense of how 2018 went, and what what are you looking forward to in 2019? Yeah, so 2018 was actually a really great year for USDS. We had the opportunity to deliver on some really big bets that we put out there. Probably the most startling of which is the vets.gov, our pilot project to, to bring some new functionality to Veterans Affairs is now no longer around. And instead, the va.gov got a facelift. So that was a really incredible project for us, working with literally almost every aspect of the VA to bring the va.gov online, rebuild it with a focus on veterans and on delivering services to those veterans. That was a big event for us, five 5,000 or more veteran interviews went into the research process there to build a series of products that, uh, according to those interviews, meet about 80% of veterans' needs in just a few clicks. Uh, It's not just information. uh, It's about being able to access benefits online and really improve the way that the VA intakes that information, which has a massive set of benefits on the back end, right? And the way that efficiencies are sort of worked through, the system can be more flexible, and it can really meet the the workload that is really being put on it by veterans out in the community. So that was that was a big deal, and we're really proud of that work. And let me just jump in, because one thing about that work, and, and I've gotten a chance to interview your colleague, uh, Marcy Jacobs, over at VA, yeah. and she won a, a very a Service to America medal. Yeah, and that was uh, that shows just how much how big of an impact that program had, but also more importantly, how big of an impact that she and your team of digital service experts are having at VA. So obviously, congratulations to you and to her and to the whole team. Go through some of the other big projects. We've talked a lot about VA. What's another couple of them that that, you, that stand out to you? Well, early last year we delivered the Quality Payments Program. That was a fascinating project. It had a hard sort of statutory launch deadline. It had an open season. To be honest, it looked a lot like healthcare.gov when it was written. This time, of course, we were involved early on, and so we worked very closely with our team at CMS alongside you know, the, the, the medical officers there, the policy people, to really translate that law into something that a computer could, could really effectively and efficiently uh, improve the process. It had a lot of potential to be something terrible like taxes for doctors. And instead, by working with doctors, working with the, the community, building a set of APIs, public APIs, we were able to deliver a great product that doctors, quite frankly, love. And so that that was great. We followed that up, of course, with uh, same, again, at CMS with the Blue Button API. So modernizing the Blue Button concept and making it uh, an API that interacts with the private sector opportunities and puts that all of that controlled in, in the hands of the owner of their data. So really like giving basically Medicare participants power over their data and their ability to use it in third-party ways is really sort of a fascinating step forward. So really expanding on the notion of a API-first approach to CMS. So that, that was great. Also, you know, sometimes we focus a lot on these big projects uh, that we do. The VA.gov is this huge thing, but also we we work on some smaller feature projects also. And the, one of them is actually probably one of my favorite projects of all time is this uh, discharge upgrade tool. I don't know if you've heard about this at the VA, but, but there are about 500,000 veterans out there that have a less than honorable discharge. 
and one in every eight of them is actually eligible for an upgrade. They were discharged with a less than honorable discharge for something that the DOD now recognizes was not their fault, right? It was related to PTSD, TBI, even victims of sexual assault in that process sometimes are uh, processed out of the, the department. And it's a really, it's a sort of a fascinating and heartbreaking situation. The, the silver lining, right, is that the DOD recognizes that this is a problem and wants to reach out to those people and find them and upgrade that discharge to honorable. But the real design challenge for, for our team is, you know, the DOD normally reaches out to people via the VA. And these people were told specifically that they were not eligible for those, those benefits. And so one, finding those people, but really the sort of the truly phenomenal and like the, the great work that went into this really went into designing a system. The only thing worse than having people be given less than an honorable discharge incorrectly, it would be to have them apply, right, to get an upgrade and then be denied again. Um, and that was, that was happening in some circumstances. And it was really a, an interesting way. So finding those people, reaching out to them, building a tool that spoke to them in plain language, that gave them the ability to like understand what they were doing, not only that whether they should apply, but when they do apply, what information they needed, was a really, really interesting project for us and, and had phenomenal results. So of those um, one in eight uh, dishonorably discharged veterans, we've been able to reach over 74% of them um, and have them use the tool. Of course, we can't track it much beyond that because there's privacy issues involved, but but that is a, a phenomenal outcome for us in a very short period of time. That project took about six months from start to finish. And I think that's a great example of we'll use a, use air quotes on this simple but but impactful process. I mean, it's it's a slice of a slice. It's not trying to impact the entire VA, but it's a, it's a portion of their customers that maybe normally somebody would have said, well, we don't have time, we don't have the resources, we don't have the know-how to reach those people, so they'll have to wait longer. And I, I think that's part of what you guys are trying to do is is, mm-hmm. is explain to others in government what I'll use the term often art of the possible is, and well, what if we could reach those people, and then how could we put that together? Do you get that sense from as as you work on these types of projects that that's the value that you guys are, are continue to bring? Yeah, I think that I think in many ways that's right. I think that we approach projects from a public impact standpoint which is a unique way of sort of looking at a problem. So for us, this is a small group of people, but this is a small group of people that have really been torn apart in a sense. Their identity has sort of been separated, right? If you were discharged from the military because you were outed during Don't Ask, Don't Tell um, and told you were not a veteran, but you did serve, you see yourself as both a member of the LGBTQ community, but also as a veteran. And like, it's hard for that to be torn apart. So like the, the human impact is really, really an interesting way to approach that and sort of restoring those that sort of what amounted to, in a sense, a broken promise was really, really important to us. I think that that plays out in small communities, but also on a grander scale, things like, you know, Medicare payment reform. That is a massive project that affects, I think, as you know, something like 18 percent of U.S. GDP. So to us. Those both of those things fall into the highly impactful category. That's a great example and a great story. So let's jump into 2019 a little bit. When you talk about priorities and, and projects you guys are working on, what are some of those at the top of the list? Definitely, Medicare payment reform is is sort of the big fish this year. Um, we've got a lot going on in that space. That is a, a complex and complicated problem at once. <laughs> um, and so uh, we've dedicated a, an amazing team to sort of dig around in there and see what we can find out. The real question is, how can we get to quality care? You know, the system that we have is, well, it's quite frankly, I think it's 8 million lines of COBOL for those people that know what that is anymore, and another couple million lines of assembly language. 
And that system is the system that is processing the payments for Medicare, for everyone. And as we add new functionality to Medicare, as we ask Medicare to pay for new things, we only add to that complexity. The system is now facing two big challenges. One, the population that it is serving is just growing, right? Because we have a generation that's aging into Medicare, but also we have people living longer. And so there's just a, an excess strain on the system to begin with. And in addition to that, we have the question of quality care. And trying to calculate quality care is far more comprehensive and far more intense process than just saying like widgets, an hour of a doctor's time, a plaster for a cast, right? That kind of the room that you were in. That's what it qualifies for now. And so doing that, we need to sort of start leveraging opportunities with cloud computing while also making sure that this critical system never goes offline. One of the things when you talk about the improving Medicare payment and reform, and, and you talk about that's the big fish, did Congress or did someone give you a goal or did CMS come to you and say, you know, this COBOL system is only going to last you know, so many more years. It's harder to find people who know assembly language to help program new requirements in. Yeah. Where did the impetus come? You know, I think it was a really it's an interesting question. It's it's more it was more of a natural progression. We had been at CMS for a while. We had delivered on a few big projects. Obviously, we started with healthcare.gov, quality payments and blue button, which I mentioned. And I think that we built a relationship with the team there. We got a chance to sort of see how CMS operates. And when we stumbled upon this system, we were like, hey, this could be a problem. <laughs> right. And the other thing is that for the private the private sector is asking for this also. Medicare is so big. Medicare is so important to the medical industry that what Medicare does is really governs like which direction the industry goes. And to be honest, Medicare, we are not going to build quality care ourselves. And Medicare isn't going to build quality care themselves. This is a major undertaking that we're going to have to do at, holistically with everybody involved. But what we need to do is we need to show the private sector which way we're headed, like whether we're going, uh, you know, if we're, if we're the battleship, right, because we're the biggest player in the field, we need to, to show the rest of the armada that we're turning either right or left. We don't have to make the full turn. But we need to give everybody a, an idea of which way we're headed so that they can help us, so that we can all go in that direction together. Because the worst thing that could happen would be for a smaller, medium-sized, or even a large medical company to go, to go left and we go right and run them out of business, right? Like we're trying, we're trying to achieve a social goal by using Medicare as the steerage for the rest of industry and working with those people to understand what they need from us, what they want from us, what medical standards look like, what interoperability looks like, and go all in on all those things. That's actually a great place to take a quick break, but I want to pull the string and come back a little bit on steering the ship because I think it's a great analogy. My guest is Eddie Hartwig, the Deputy Administrator in the U.S. Digital Service. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Eddie Hartwig, the U.S. Digital Services Deputy Administrator. Eddie, before break, we got into some of the priorities for 2019. You mentioned uh, one of the big ones, which is uh, Medicare payment reform. What else are you guys looking at? What other agencies are you working in for uh, 2019? We are still in several agencies. We have some big stuff going on at the VA. Like I said, we last year we went from Best.gov, we started working on VA.gov that launched on Veterans Day. Now, however, we haven't stopped that work. I don't know if you've noticed, but on the VA.gov, there's actually a login section. So veterans can log in, uh, identify themselves with the VA. And that actually takes veterans now to a personalized experience where they can apply for benefits. They can see the benefits that they have applied for. They can get a status update on where those things are. 
Uh, they can do things like um, renew their prescriptions and, and really interestingly, you know, apply for new claims. That That is, I think, the future of where we want to go. And this is really top-notch service. And it, it involved to get here, we got here with the help of everybody at the VA. So again, much like we were talking about at CMS, the relationship we built over time have allowed us to sort of take on grander challenges and work with partners. A good example is there's a team over there called Vets360 that built an information hub that allows us to do things like, allows veterans to do things like update their address once and have it update everywhere. That sounds like a simple thing, but it is a really big challenge in a system as broad and as old as VA. And it has real world consequences. When you're, when you're, personal, like when mail is being sent and you're not getting it because it's at an address that's old, even though you have updated your address with the VA, that is not only a frustrating experience, it can lead to really negative outcomes. So leveraging things like that to be able to make it so that veterans can have a one-stop experience, that they can update their address, they can see in real time that it's been updated in all the right places, that they can get recommendations on what uh, kinds of benefits based on, you know, based on the benefits you have, like you might also be eligible for these benefits is like, it's a fascinating way to approach service delivery in the government, and it's really unique. There is no other agency – well, there is no other agency as large as the VA and the TOD, but there's no other agency of of that size that is engaging with their population online the way the VA does. And I think that it's a testament to everybody who uh, put that together. I, you mentioned the SAMI. I should probably say, like, Marcy would be the first person to tell you that while she received a SAMI, which is great – she really received it on behalf of a lot more people than herself, not just her team, but also a lot of the stakeholders and people like the Veterans Experience Office, the Office of IT, and others that they all work together to make this thing happen. You know, it, 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 I think that that's an important note that we are, we have a great team over there doing great work um, across the agency. It's interesting you bring up the transaction piece. I remember, and this will just tell you how long I've been doing this, back in the early 2000s when <laughs> the whole e government phenomena happened. And, one of the big things was let's move people to transactions, let's do transactions online, and they thought of different programs or different approaches. And one was the, the what still exists called Gov Benefits. And the big hang up on Gov Benefits was yes, you could find what you may or may not be eligible for, but you can never apply. And the apply piece is so important. It seems like you guys maybe have solved at least for VA the apply piece. If I here's the benefits I have, here's what I may be eligible for. Hit a button, get me to the page to apply. Do I have that right? Do you have you solved that issue for at least for some of it? Yeah, at least for some of it. I, I hesitate to say we've solved the problem. We have tried, and so we have. I think that we have seen the benefits of something as simple as a web form, right? Like, in order to bring real value to the VA, we don't need necessarily the blockchain, right? We don't need the AI and the machine learning. We need something as simple as you know a web form that can collect data in a in a way that we can pass it via an API from system to system. The, the benefits of that simple technology are vast. I, to this day, I think, and I, I think that this is a low estimate, to be honest, we estimate that over a five-year period, the work that we've done on these transactional-type systems will save the government more than 2,000 labor years of effort. Now, that's 2,000 labor years of people, instead of manually retyping something from one screen into another, you know, that's the person at the, the VA talking to a veteran on the phone. That's the person at the Small Business Administration giving small business advice. You know, the thing that they applied to do. Like, nobody applies to the government to retype forms, right? But sadly, that is, that is sometimes the norm. And so that is a, it is an oddly transformative 
bit of technology. So we have done that, and we have been very successful at the VA. And I think it's 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 easier than just you know putting up the website, right? There's there's a lot of interaction and integration in the background. But we have then been able to sort of take that with our partners at the VA and build out what we call the U.S. form system. So we actually created a, a library for the developers out there. It's a JavaScript library that allows you to have some of these things pre-built for you. And so it includes 508 compliance. It includes the web design standards. And it just makes it easier, basically, for a developer to develop a page. That's an open source tool that's available to everyone, not just the government. But we built it because we want more people doing things like that. And we've seen, we've actually seen some, a little short period of time we've been doing it. We've seen some really interesting successes. City of Austin, Texas just used it to, to build a tool that they are working on for um, oversight and reform. So um, it's out there and we're happy to help people with it because like that's, that's where we're seeing the success. I think that's a great example of taking lessons that you guys have learned and, and sharing them and taking advantage of, you know, build once, use many concepts that we've been hearing about for years and years and years. Outside of VA, outside of CMS, sounds like those are your two big customers. Other <laughs> customers or other programs or, or other people that you want to start helping or looking to helping? So we're always available to do new work. Like we, we can do this great work at the VA, at CMS, at DOD, at DHS, where we've had long-term relationships. But of course, we can't start a new long-term relationship until we go to a new place. And so part of the USDS model is to be able to expand to new agencies and do new work. And we have, in fact, done three new discovery sprints this year already. Um, and we plan to do a lot more of that this year. As we finish up these big projects, we have the capacity now to do a lot more work in a lot, in a much broader area. And I'm really looking forward to that. It's it's great for us. It's great for the team. And it's a good way to really spread the what we have learned from where we have been, right? Like to other agencies. There's a, There's only so much we can share if we don't know what problems you're addressing. But when we move to a new agency, we bring all of that knowledge with us from where we've been already. And I guess asking which agencies you've done those discovery sprints for, you probably can't tell me, huh? We have a policy at USDS, and I think it's an important one, that we only talk about the work when it's done. You know, too often, like, things don't come through, right? And Or, or you know, the, the product launch doesn't go the day it's supposed to be. And so we're really focused on what we want to be able to do is we want to be able to talk about the work that people can go and, and work with. Like they can go play with. You can go online right now and everything that we've talked about, you can access it in some form or another. And so, you know, a year from now would be a great time to ask me <laughs> what new work we're doing. I'm going to hold you to it as long as you're here, of course, right? Yeah. Well, if I'm here, I'd be happy to. Eventually your uh, term may expire. <laughs> and then if an agency is interested in going through that discovery sprint effort, they just contact your office or how does that process work just briefly? Yeah, it, it can happen a number of ways. We can get referred by people. You can definitely reach out. Like if there are people listening and they are having, you know, they have a impactful project that you know is working with the public in some way, and and they're not seeing the results, or there's actual harm being done. You always open to having people reach out, and we you can reach out. To actually, interestingly enough, you normally work directly with me, and we'll sit down and we'll have a discussion about what what your project looks like, where you are, what skills you have already and what you need and whether or not USDS can add value. And to be clear, the projects don't have to be in trouble or problematic per se. It could just be an idea that maybe needs a little bit of uh, extra manpower or woman power. And mm -hmm. it could also be something where, hey, we're seeing this problem starting to creep up. It's not a big problem yet, but it's getting there. Help us nip it in the bud, if you will. I want to be clear, because a lot of times when USDS was first developed in 2014, you guys were called the firefighters, right? The SWAT yeah. team. And, and that's changed a little bit. Yeah. I mean, we still do that when it comes up. But like if I had to, if I got to choose between 
trying in a dramatic fashion to bring a failed system back online or preventing that system from falling over in the first place, I'd definitely choose the latter, right? Like if you have a system that you are worried that is going to fail and that it's going to impact people's lives, I would much rather know about that before it failed. So just a simple rule of thumb. Yeah, I gotta throw you know. One of the things I want to just tag back to just briefly is the concept you brought up, which is trying to turn the ship, give people this idea of the direction that the agency or the project or the program is heading so people, others can follow, whether in government or out of government or, you know, the, the, the private sector stakeholders. In, in many ways, that comes from the collaboration piece that you guys have really been promoting over the last few years, getting the partnerships, getting the trust, creating the trust, and then understanding that as you guys move forward, you can kind of pick up people that, that maybe aren't on board yet or maybe are, are, are in the back of the armada as you – just to mm-hmm. play with your uh, analogy a little bit. Is that the biggest difference you've seen over the last few years with USDS is, is kind of that viewpoint of, of how to get things done and how to make how to make a difference? I mean we still do firefighting. I mentioned that. And I think that what we've done is we've added tools to our toolbox in that sense. We have built these relationships. Those relationships allow us to – uh, work on bigger projects. Um, obviously, in a in a question of something that has failed and you're responding to it, you normally just address what the actual problem is in the moment. The goal is not to make it perfect. The goal is to make it bring it back online. Whereas, and that's a very different that's a very different approach. So, if we're working on something like payment reform for Medicare, like that requires more than just technical skills. That requires medical doctors, and that requires procurement specialists, and that requires lawyers. And so that is a whole team approach. And we um, we have built great relationships through firefighting, but we have then leveraged those relationships into this whole team approach and being a, being a, a contributing part of that team, right? We could not do these bigger projects with a team of of six or 10, which is standard for us. We certain, some of them we couldn't do with all 170 of us, right? So that is the ne- that is where we see the most value being done. But certainly, if something falls over tomorrow, we'll probably be asked to pick it back up again, and I'm fine with doing that. <laughs> Excellent, uh, Eddie. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to uh, jump into another party about digital IT acquisition professionals and, and the training of those uh, folks. Uh, but first, we'll take a break. My guest is Eddie Hartwig, the U.S. Digital Services Deputy Administrator. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest is Eddie Hartwig, the U.S. Digital Services Deputy Administrator. Eddie, we talked uh, before break about a lot of 2018 successes, 2019 plans and priorities. Let's move over to a 2018 initiative that was launched to help acquisition professionals really understand how to buy, how to manage, how to be better about digital services and, and, and digital acquisition. And this is the Digital Certification for IT Acquisition Professionals. What's the latest with that? How's the progress been? How many classes have gone through? Give us the, the details. It is a long-term play for us to try and make the government a better consumer of technology, right? So we recognize that like, we can't build everything ourselves. We don't want to build everything ourselves, and we shouldn't build everything ourselves in the government. Um, there's a lot that the private sector has to offer. Um, but to do that, we really needed to get the government up to speed on how modern technology should be consumed. And so the, the DITAP program is geared at training contracting officers so that they can they better understand processes like iterative development, user research and design, things that really that we have brought to some small projects we're trying to really scale up via this program. So to be honest, I don't know exactly how many classes we have gone through. I think maybe six or seven uh, sounds about right to date. But right now we're really ramping up. So up in, 
up until this year, up until through 2018, we had trained about 50 people, 50 contracting officers. This year alone, we are set to train at least 192. The way that we've done this is very interesting. You know, you put contracting officers in charge of a project and you know what they do? They decided to build a, you know, a library of materials and then basically contract out the services. So we, we shifted to a train the trainer model, um, which is how we're able to sort of expand the numbers that way. So uh, we still do some training and we still work with the projects, but really trying to hand this off to professional trainers that can do the work of scaling this throughout the government. So we've got uh, two teams now working with us and we're onboarding some more this year, at least one more right away and maybe more later. The goal, right, is to reach this uh, this policy of 2022 that all contracts over $7 million in the IT space should be uh, should have a trained DITAP uh, contracting officer on their team. That's a, that's, a, that's a big lift, right? So we've got a lot of work to do, but we're off to a great start, I think. So by the end of the year, I think 250 people, and hopefully we can double that number next year. I really like the fact you're very specific in your number, 192. <laughs> I, I realize it's, it's based on the number of people you can go through the program and, and the class times, how many classes you're going to have, but... I just have to say 192, not 190, not more than. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I don't want to overpromise. Oh, exactly. Like 192 is the minimum number based on what we know right now. So No, no, but... that's great. And, and I guess the question is, is, are you having an overwhelming number of people wanting to jump into the program? Are you getting a lot of requests? Or are you trying to, again, is it still in that you know, crawl, walk, run stage? Are you still in the crawl stage? No, I think that we're in the walk stage. I think the crawl stage was really getting the program up and running running it a few times and learning from it, right? Like the program was not perfect on day one and it's not perfect today, but it's certainly a lot better. That being said, we're confident now we're working with outside partners in the private sector to do this. And so we're getting their perspectives and working closely with them to bring the program to speed. I, I think that that is the big milestone is that we were able to to bring in others to help us do this. So that would be walk. The run stage would be, hey, we've got enough trained contracting officers to meet this 2020 deadline. Uh, we're not there yet, but but we're getting we're getting better and we're growing and i think that that is this might be one of the most impactful things that usds does over time actually any estimates of how many is going to be enough i mean any contract over 7 million how many contracts over 7 million or have you guys done any analysis on that actually there has been i think some work done there that um, i'm just not personally privy to that that would be done by the um, office of procurement policy okay um, that's what i figured i knew it was a little, little bit of a curveball there but i figured i'd ask just in case no, if, if you question. knew kind of the sense how has the program evolved like what have you learned from that first class to to today do you get a sense of is it just the way people learn is it the topics you're trying to address because the other big challenge i could see is the processes change, right? It was mm-hmm. DevOps. Now it's DevSecOps. And <laughs> ne- next year could be add the fourth term to it, whatever that's going to be. Yeah. Well, let's be honest. Like what we're, what we're bringing to the process is a basic understanding of how modern technology is built currently. These are contracting officers. These are not engineers. They don't need to be, you know, at the bleeding edge of what's happening in industry. They need to be able to speak with industry, work with industry, right? Because what, what we found is that we have, you know, great companies out there that are doing, have private sector contracts that are doing amazing iterative development, you know, user-driven work. And those same companies are working with the government and the government is requiring them to use an antiquated development method from 20 years ago. And so, and that's because that's what they knew in many cases. And that's what um, they were taught. And so bringing those skills forward so that, 
we can really enable the private sector to do their best work, not just for the private sector, but for the government as well, and bring that value inside in-house. And so um, we're teaching, you know, the value of product management. We're teaching the value of user-centered design. We're teaching the, the, the value of uh, iteration, right, and being flexible, open source, if that's what's necessary for the particular project. Like in these ways, and then how to manage multiple contracts. The government oftentimes hires multiple contractors to work in collaboration on a single project. Um, we've worked on projects with more than 10 at once. And so that is a skill in and of itself is weaving that tapestry of different work together and making sure that, you know, that not just every individual piece of a pro product works, but that they work in concert to solve the problem that we're really going for. And those are the skills that we're bringing to the, to the DITAP program. Any conference you go to and they start talking about innovation, and it's a big buzzword, we know that. And sometimes actually you find some innovation that pops out. Uh, the Homeland Security Department and the Procurement Innovation Lab is mm -hmm. one example. I know that even U.S. Uh, Citizenship and Immigration Service, USCIS, has some innovation they're doing around uh, bringing in contractors, forcing them, if you will, to work together as a team. Yeah. Are you begging, borrowing, stealing from some of these other, uh, other agencies and the progress they're making to, to pull into this training? Absolutely. I actually think one of the great things uh, about having a training program like this, which pulls in officers from multiple different agencies is that we're learning from the from the people that we're training like they're bringing us their problem sets they're bringing us their real world experience which is great that's what we do right like we go out into an agency and we build a thing and we learn hey like ato process is difficult right and we bring that back and we you know we bring it to the team and we can pull that together. The same way we're pulling people from all over government and private industry to work at USDS, we're pulling people from all over government to work on this DITAP program. And, you know, there's a robust alumni community where they are sh they're sharing their success stories. They're talking about, you know, the problems that they've had getting their this new methodology adopted in-house. And they are banding together and really building not only camaraderie, but a knowledge base that is persistent. And that that is the real goal, right? So, yeah, absolutely. We, we will... We are open to learning from everybody that we are working with. And the DITIP program is a great example of that collaborative sort of thinking process. Over the long term, I know by 2020 you have a main goal. And that's one way you'll measure success. Do you meet that goal or not? But in the short term, how are you also measuring success of this program? The long, right, the long term success is hard to measure because we want to, the benefits of being a better consumer of technology are more usable more usable products in the market, like cheaper sales points and all these things. But for in the short term, we can't measure that until, you know, contracts in the government last years. Let me, let me just jump in real quick, because one of the things that I've seen on, for instance, the federal IT dashboard, and, and OMB talks about this with the reporting from agencies, is the number of projects or programs that are in the waterfall or the number of programs or projects that are iterative, and then how long does a typical program last? That data has been up on the IT dashboard and I'm not sure when the last time it was updated, but is that also a measure that the, the more projects that are considered iterative, the fewer that are considered waterfall and the shorter time to complete a project, is is that a metric you guys look at or is that because the government's so big, it, it's not necessarily representative of the DITAP program? Yeah. And I think that this is one of the things that we struggle with in general is that like like true meaningful change is sometimes hard to measure. A lot of what you're talking about are buzzwords, right? Like there's a lot of people that say that they operate in an agile manner or that you do user-centered design, but that doesn't mean that they don't. There's all sorts of hybrid methods out there. And sometimes best methodology is not the right buzzword. We're measuring, I think, in the short term, really just the number of officers we're training. Like we we have, we need to scale up to this 2020 deadline. So one, that is just a 
a, a metric that we can track very simply. The other one I think is the number of trainers that we can bring into the training program. Right. Because each one of them is a force multiplier. Like every time we bring in a new team, like we my team couldn't train 192 people this year. Right. But three teams can. So what can we do with six teams, nine teams, 12 teams? Um, so those are like easier, I think, to understand short term metrics. And then what I'd like to see is I'd like to see the results of that. I'd like to see the community. Right. Like the metrics that we're trying to track as we're reaching out after the fact, after people have graduated and said, have you used these methodologies? Have you been successful? Have you, you know, how, have you written a contract? How does that compare to a comparable contract that you've written in the past? And get that uh, user, like, post-graduation user research. That helps us understand whether the program is going in the right direction. Um, it's a little inside baseball, but, like, that's kind of how this is working in the short and medium term. I think once we scale up the program and we start seeing some results, we'll be able to measure sort of benchmark against those um, going forward five, ten years. Any plans to do that research yet, or is it a continuous research where you're asking for feedback, asking yep. how many people have you trained, how many, how, how often do you use these approaches? Yep, that's what we're doing. That is exactly what we are doing now, um, is trying to, right, because one thing to train somebody is another thing for them to actually use that knowledge in the real world, and is a, a third thing for them to be successful. And so we're not only asking them those questions, but when we're getting results that aren't right, right, if people can't get it done, we're reaching out and we're actually helping them. So like, it is a collaborative effort. The, the training doesn't end at the training course. You are now part of this alumni community that gets support not only from the community, but from, from USDS. And we've had a lot of, I will say, we've had a lot of DITAB alums go out there and do great work and bring in great contractors that we haven't actually worked with in the field ourselves. So it is a, it is a self-supporting system. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can wrap up our conversation. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. My guest today, Eddie Hartwig, the U.S. Digital Services Deputy Administrator, and I'm your host, Jason Miller. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today, Eddie Hartwig, the U.S. Digital Services Deputy Administrator. Eddie, before break, we were talking about the training of acquisition workers, contracting officers to buy better in the digital world. But that's not the only effort you guys are doing around workforce and workforce reskilling. The Trump administration is putting a lot of effort around getting agencies away from what they call low-value work and moving employees to high-value work. And, and that comes with a whole reskilling effort. Where does USDS fit into this uh, broader initiative? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. I think from the from the get-go, the reskilling piece is not really our work. We do work alongside. I will say that in the, when we engage with an agency, we work alongside that agency. So we're not, you know, the myth of USDS, you know, three masked superheroes coming into an agency and on their own solving all the problems is not a real one, right? Um, we, we're sending a team of five or six people in, but they are working closely with that agency team. They are working closely with contractors. They are working closely with, you know, people throughout the, the process on the business side and on the IT side. Um, and in doing so, in working with those people, we're bringing some modern skills that, that they, are, they do not have in their agency. We're bringing some modern tools from the private sector into those agencies. But we're also learning quite a bit about why those agencies are the way they are. Um, and together, we, we will then like, sort of form a coalition and build a product. In doing so, when we leave, we leave them with what we, what we brought to them in the first place. And we leave with the knowledge that they have given us about not only how that agency works, but how the government works. So we, we don't have a dedicated reskilling process, but I do like to think that we bring value to every team we engage in. 
On the hiring process, however, on the improving the federal hiring process, we are actually engaged in a really interesting project right now, trying to take some of what we've learned about attracting some three, 400 really highly talented people from the private sector to come work for government, you know, using impactful mission, uh, the way that we vet people um, in the interview process, code reviews, design, you know, portfolio reviews, that kind of thing. And we are actually like working uh, right now on an interesting project with OPM to try and uh, bring that to our agency partners, to bring that to the government. Uh, but, but start real small, like we normally do, by running a pilot program or two with a few agencies to say, hey, would this help you improve your um, digital workforce? You know, and so as we run through that, we're hoping to, to learn from the few, first few iterations of this um, and then maybe scale that up. Right? The, the end goal would be you know, one of our missions. So our, I don't know, our mission page, actually, we have a new website right now. So interestingly enough, usds.gov is has got a new look. Uh, but the mission is the same. One of the pieces of the mission, right, is to make the better government a better consumer of technology through procurement. Another one is to bring top talent into government, not just to USDS, but into government. And so we're working right now on potentially running a few pilots around how we can improve that process in agencies. The ideal, you know, end state of USDS is that we're not necessary, that the agency is fully equipped with all the skills it needs to build and buy products. And so that, I don't think we're there yet, but we're starting that work on the hiring side is really, I think, sort of a fascinating new endeavor for us. And just to put a finer point on it, you said the pilots are coming later this year? Yeah, we're actually kicking one off right now. So I think the idea would be to work around like a 90-day hiring, 80, 90-day hiring pipeline. I think that that is what OPM, the goal that they have set. And so that lets us in about a four-month period run a, a hiring project, learn from it, and turn around and maybe run another one with a few more agencies um, and see if we can sort of test out some of these theories. Uh, we did a lot of research with OPM, great collaborative effort with the lab at OPM, which is a, an interesting sister organization of ours. And, and also with the full support of OPM leadership, we were able to sort of really dig deep into what like the, the, the federal hiring process writ large and see what flexibilities we have in there. And I think we've got a, a good starting point um, but we'll see how it evolves over the course of the year. I think maybe two to three pilots in the next 12 months would be ideal. And the agencies you're working with, are you working with specific agencies or are you working on specific job occupations? We're going to set this up to hire digital services or set this up to hire 2210s, but the yeah. specific type. Interesting. So um, it's a little bit of everything, right? We've had interest uh, on a number of fronts. Uh, definitely interest. Our specialty is, of course, hiring 2210s or digital service experts goal is to get the career hiring up and running. You know, we have, we're on this tour of duty model that you referenced earlier. That's, you know, that's not sustainable for the lifetime of the government. We, we need great career people taking these jobs. And so we're really focused on that piece and not on the direct hiring method. But in that world, like we're also, we've been open to working with partners in other specialty fields. You know, everybody has their specialties. The idea would be subject matter, expert um, involvement in the hiring process and the vetting process. Uh, so that we can deliver better results when we get to the point of hiring. So you don't get a list of 2,000 people that are qualified for the job, but you get a nicely vetted list of people that are qualified for the job and then the, the preferences that are allowed in government are applied and everybody there is qualified and you can not just hire one of them for every job description, but potentially hire all of them for all of the needs you have in that category agency-wide. That would be the end goal. All right, something maybe to follow up with you. Sounds like they're just getting started, so maybe six six or eight months from now, another reason to uh, catch up with you. Yeah. This also lends itself to a very similar effort going on at the CIO Council through their Federal Reskilling Academy for Cybersecurity. 
I don't know if you guys are part of that or watching it from maybe a close by, but talk maybe about your experiences and, and, and how you guys have continued to work with the CIO Council, but as also the federal CIO Suzette Kent in her office. Matt Cutts, the administrator, and uh, Suzette, our, our colleagues. Like I'm, Suzette is one of my colleagues as well. We work very closely. It's a really interesting process that we have of dividing policy from service delivery. It's really interesting because Suzette is, and her team are experts on the crafting, the researching, and the sort of disseminating of policy throughout the government. We are out there sort of on the front lines building product, working with teams, and we see the effect of those things. And because we sit together in OMB, we can really come back. I can I can be on a project and come back um, and have a discussion with Suzette and say, hey, like I encountered the following issues, right? Like the purpose of, you know, this cloud first policy and the purpose of this um, trusted internet connection policy are both in, in their own lanes are both have the right idea, but in combination actually come into conflict. Um, and that's caused problems in the delivery of, of better results for the government and for the public. And she can take that to heart and she can learn from that experience. But again, like we get, we stay in our lane. So it's a, it's an interesting, it's a collaborative relationship. And I think that that is sort of a fascinating aspect of the way that we as the federal government do business. I, not a lot of, not a lot of places split those two things, but it allows us to be sort of purely focused on where we deliver the most value in both sides, but also collaborative in identifying problems and overlaps. It's interesting you bring up both TIC and the cloud first yeah. policy. Two two ones that one are being redone and we're expecting the updated policies. The draft policies are out there. Comments are in. We're expecting the new policies in the next year, hopefully, or less. The other thing is that you brought up earlier was the authority to operate the ETO process for systems. Yeah. Was that another one where you said on the surface, yes, maybe this makes sense, but in reality, wow, it's really stopping us from moving forward quickly and, and getting the service to the citizen. Was that another one where you maybe looked across your desk and waved at Suzanne, <laughs> waved at Suzette across the office and said, hey, maybe that's another one we can tackle together? We have definitely flagged some issues that we have with the ATO policy. As the industry moves forward, quite frankly, bug bounties are a concept that are 10 years old in industry, right? They're, they're new. We're doing some bleeding edge stuff in the government and bringing bug bounties like Hack the Pentagon, Hack the Marines, really interesting stuff. But they're changing what security looks like. Um, and the government is not, in my opinion, is not keeping up with that. And there are good reasons for that, right? The government has proprietary data. They have different problems than the private sector does in many ways. And so I applaud caution and I applaud the efforts to keep things secure, but but also we need to keep up with the threat, right? And so um, I do think that there could be a lot of work done in the ATO space. I hope there would be a lot of work done in the ATO space to, to take advantage of modern security techniques. And so we've definitely raised our hand. I make no promises that anything is changing because again, that's not my lane. That's definitely Suzette. But she's, she and her team are doing an amazing amount of work on those first two and uh, really excited to see how that's going. Eddie, I really appreciate your time. This is a, always a fascinating conversation. I always appreciate the fact you uh, come on and take the time. So let me thank my guest, Eddie Hartwig, the U.S. Digital Services Deputy Administrator. Eddie, again, thank you for your time. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 